Hello, movie marathoners, and welcome to the Movie Marathoners Sundance 5K series, a series of short episodes centered on the films released at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival. I'm your host, Mati, and in this episode, I'm honored to get the opportunity to interview Jonathan Snipes, the composer of the documentary A Glitch in the Matrix, which had its premiere on January 31st. The documentary, directed by Rodney Asher, is a multimedia exploration of simulation theory, which is an idea as old as Plato's Republic and as current as Elon Musk's Twitter feed. The documentary looks through the eyes of those who suspect our world isn't real. Part sci-fi mind scrambler, part horror story, this is a digital journey to the limits of radical doubt. This documentary is pretty wild. Um, it has twinges of horror, definitely twinges of humor, and plenty of profound observations on how media influences our thoughts and actions, and what kind of people are most likely to believe in this idea of simulation theory. If you're a fan of The Matrix, or if you simply want to know why so many people subscribe to the idea that we're living in a simulation, this film might be right up your alley. But one of the most unique aspects of this film is the score, which is an amalgamation of electronic synth and techno-thriller kind of vibes. Jonathan Snipes, the composer, has a rich history of composing and producing music for all types of projects and works of art. In addition to being a film composer, he's also a music producer for the freestyle rap group Clipping, which also features the lyricist David Diggs. So check out my interview with Jonathan Snipes, where we talk all about A Glitch in the Matrix, what it's like to score a film versus produce a track for Clipping, and so much more. It was a fantastic interview. All that is coming up right now. All right, I'm joined by Jonathan Snipes, the composer and sound designer for the trippy documentary premiering at Sundance, A Glitch in the Matrix. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me. It's oh, an honor. Absolutely my pleasure. Happy to be here. How's your Tuesday been? Uh pretty pretty brief so far. Uh it's pretty it's fairly early in the morning. I've uh, just kind of gone through my morning routine of, you know, coffee and dishes and getting my wife ready to go to work and, you know, and here we are. <laughs> yeah, you're on uh the west coast so i'm over here on the east coast so i've had three more hours of the day oh, yeah, yeah, for a little sure, bit sure. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a film score composer but you also produce tracks for a freestyle rap group clipping uh you do some teaching at ucla you're a theater sound designer at the geffen theater so i imagine you're pretty busy so what exactly attracted you to a glitch in the matrix and how do you generally choose the projects that you want to be a part of well choose is a really kind word um i kind of say <laughs> yes to everything <laughs> Um, which is maybe why I'm so sort of, sort of spread out across, across all these different disciplines. But, you know, Rodney Asher, who made Glitch in the Matrix, he and I have been working together since like 2011, 2012, mm. when, when he made, uh, Room 237, which is our first time working together, uh, which is that the, his documentary about, uh, various conspiracy theories related to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Um, yep. and as Rodney put it once in sort of a casual conversation after a screening to, uh, to somebody uh, he and I are married now, um, ever <laughs> since then. And I, and I think he assumes that I'm working on whatever he's doing and I assume that I'm working on it too. So I tend to know about Rodney's movies pretty early on in the process, like well before they're greenlit, you know, or well before we know we're actually going to get to make it. I, cause the way his movies work, um, you know, is he has this idea and he has to sort of probe it to make sure there's actually enough to make the film. So there are all these, all, all these, all this work happens before, a production company will even say, oh, this seems like it'll even go. Like a lot of the interviews have to sort of happen before, uh, before that. So I'm, I'm very aware of those pretty early on and I can start kind of thinking, even if I'm not necessarily doing any work, 
so Rodney's movies are just kind of generally a part of my life <laughs> and and, the, and it's always like a soft start into them um and usually by the time he says oh and we're good now we're going i've already written some music or we've already had some conversations or like oh. i mean the first thing i did on glitch of the matrix um you know when he when i heard the title i kind of knew what it needed to sound like uh and and then when we started talking more about like the the, the content of the movie i immediately kind of had this idea of what uh, of, of sort of where i wanted to go and so the very first thing i did was assemble a folder of you know a hundred or so temp music cues for him to use uh just to kind of get make sure our heads were in the same place um about what the movie should sound like that's interesting because you know I, that's something that i always have as somebody who does not know anything about the filmmaking process and not knowing what goes on behind the scenes like when you as the sound producer come into the project right like you so it seems like you kind of give him these sort of clips and he sort of aligns the clips with the scenes that he already has as opposed to you getting like a complete cut of the film and then going back and editing it yeah well this is actually pretty unusual and it's uh mm -hmm. it's it's even unusual i mean it's unusual for me i think for everybody usually music and sound is sort of the last thing that anybody thinks about okay. um and and a more sort of typical process for me on like a a narrative feature usually i guess unless it's somebody that i know beforehand is is that i get handed essentially a finished film and then i get three weeks to put all this all the music into it or something oh, wow <laughs> right which is you know that that process has its benefits too i mean people love mm -hmm. to sort of talk shit about that process but i i kind of love that too because you really do know what you're working with right like you mm -hmm. there's there's not a lot of like I mean, there's just no time, but there's not a lot of room to kind of find it, right? You kind of know what the film is and it almost like guides your hand in a really kind of beautiful way. Like, I I mean, I, you know, I love constraints, I think, are, are really, uh, are really good for creativity, you know, and sometimes having too many options is, is kind of paralyzing right. in its own way, right? And so I don't think I would, I would want to work exclusively one way or the other, right? I would want to kind of, I, I love being able to kind of move back and forth. Like sometimes I get handed a finished film and I can slot myself into it. And sometimes I'm involved, um, you know, like right now I'm involved with a, a director who I've, I've worked with. We did our, I did his first film like a year ago or so. And we're now talking pre-script phase. You know, he's have, he oh, has wow. ideas and he says, here's an idea. How, how could sound support this idea as I start to write the script? And he'll call me and, you know, we'll talk through some ideas and things. And that's great too. And that's really fun. And, opens up tons of opportunities that's really cool yeah um i read that when you were composing the score for a glitch in the matrix you were inspired by hacker movie music <laughs> from the 90s yeah so to speak and it also seems like a lot of your other work has been on horror films so there's does seem to be some horror elements to the score too i was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and what other inspirations you used to score the film sure well i you know i um i have this like deep fondness and love for, I mean, I think because I was a teenager in the 90s and those are the movies that were coming out, right? Like The Matrix and Hackers yeah. and Pi and The Saint and Spawn. And I'm trying to think of all these movies with like these big kind of quote electronica soundtracks, right? These like, Ameri yeah, yeah. <laughs> these, like American, this American version of what techno was in the 90s, right? That uh, That had these kind of needle drop like big compilation soundtracks and the soundtracks were bigger than the movies in some cases, you know, um, blade two had a big one. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I, you know, I have a, I have a real fondness for some of those. And like, and though I kind of, you know, as everyone does, you kind of go move away from the music you loved as a teenager and then you kind of come back to it and you mm-hmm. sort of, I, I'm, I'm in this constant like battle of like, guilty pleasure versus genuine respect you know for these things <laughs> and i've always and i always sort of thought i was like my my sort of initial um you know imp- impetus for the for, for glitch in the matrix music was like what if what if i got to make my compilation soundtrack for the matrix what if it wasn't mm-hmm. you know rob zombie and crystal method and uh you know and rob d and I forget who else is on there. I think Prodigy is on there and stuff. What if it was like Autiker and Aphex Twin and Pole and and um, Pansonic and Alvinoto and all, like all of these like kind of more experimental people who I still think are operating in this like fringe of like sort of technology on its last legs or like to, or like the the like the sort of edge of functioning computers and technology right like what if mm-hmm. what if the music sounded to me more like the movie feels because i think the only you know i don't know this is something we grapple with in my band clipping all the time right is like when you're making sort of conceptual music which is kind of what a film score is it's a concept album sort of you right. know uh well like how, how like how can you timbrely support that concept in additionally uh, in addition to lyrically right like I have this sort of memory of like being a child and getting like some concept, you know, rock record from the seventies. I mean like, whoa, this is going to be amazing. It's got like spaceships and monsters <laughs> and all this stuff on the cover. And then you put it on and it's like guitar, drums and bass. It's like just a bunch of rock songs, you know, and I, yeah. <laughs> and I expect it to sound like another world. Right. And so I think that's been a, been a huge driving principle. And it's like when filmmakers talk about like, like I feel like horror filmmakers in my generation, like people my age talk about like, these memories of seeing VHS box covers in the eighties and they're like, Whoa, this movie's going to be amazing. It's going to blow my mind. Look at how crazy this cover is. And then you put it in and it's some low budget straight to VHS thing that just doesn't look at all like the cover, right? The cover sells the movie. And so, and I I feel like, you know, people would talk about a lot about like trying to make movies that live up to the box cover, right? A whole movie that feels like the box cover. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we're premise. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of what we're doing in clipping. Like we made a science fiction record, where the sort of guiding principle of making all the beats was like, we want it to just sound like what we imagine the practical sounds of a spaceship would be, you know? Wow. It's like, it's like, oh, there's just a motor going and the one guy left alive on this spaceship decides to rap over it. And that's kind <laughs> of the idea. Right. And so I, you yeah. know, and so like glitch in the matrix, you know, like I love the matrix soundtrack actually. Like I don't mean to like, I love, you know, chemical brothers and Rob zombie and, uh, propeller heads and prodigy and I forget I'm like I'm just kind of like guessing at who's on that soundtrack because I don't really remember sure, yeah. <laughs> but I love all that stuff but it doesn't actually sound like breaking computers to me or like you know mm. like slipping in and out of alternate realities to me whereas like the music of like Pansonic or Pole or um, Finesse or Alvinoto or uh, I don't know the, that whole sort of like the, the like sort of raster note and like Adam, Adam TM, like all of that stuff really does like, I mean, it's legitimately made out of the sound of breaking computers, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and, and breaking electronics. And so I wanted to sort of, to sort of bridge those two worlds and make kind of, yeah, what I called like hacker techno, but with like 
IDME, like glitchy, um, sort of broken sounds. Yeah, and it's really effective in the film, especially in the moments when it's kind of just your score over the images, as opposed to what's usually in a documentary, right? Like with where there's just talking heads. And, and it's interesting to think about scoring a documentary, at least for me, because like more so maybe than a, a feature film, the the score is kind of in the background for a lot of it. it it's there's there's not a lot. I mean, there are a couple scenes in this film. There's one in particular that I want to talk about specifically yeah, that sure. is mainly the score, but there's a lot of it that's like the main focus is what the people are saying in, in the talking heads. So I'm just wondering if there's any difference in how you would approach scoring a documentary versus a narrative feature. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, a little less so with Rodney, but Rodney doesn't make documentaries like other people. And honestly, like I'm actually trying to think now, I think I've only ever done Rodney's documentaries. Um, <laughs> okay. I don't think I've done a quote unquote real documentary, um, you know, because his, his, his documentaries are a little different and he has like sort of a, a, an eye for an aesthetic, like a sort of an aesthetic framework for the whole movie that it's, it's really, it's, I think people are often disappointed. I read reviews of his movies that are like, well, I watched, I watched the room 237 and all the theories are bullshit. I don't, I don't think any of this is true. And I didn't learn anything about the shining. And it's like, well, it's not about, it's not a movie about the shining. It's a movie about these people, you know, and it's a movie about these ideas. And the movie doesn't have to believe any of these ideas in order to present them. Right. And I think glitch in the matrix is similar in that way. Right. That this is not, this is not a movie that's going to teach you maybe a little more so than some of the others, but this is not necessarily going to teach you everything you need to know about simulation theory, right? This is a movie about these people and their relationships to this idea of simulation theory and how it has affected their lives. It's, it's almost like, I mean, to me, that's what a good documentary does, right? Is it sort of presents primary sources and doesn't like really give you, it doesn't attempt to provide an answer, right? Or, uh, 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 manipulate you into thinking a certain way um, mm-hmm. about about the subject, uh, and I think Rodney does that sort of fairly deftly. Just gets better and better at it. I think as the films, as he makes more films. Yeah, I I really like that the film introduces these ideas and introduces these people, and and some of them certainly are experts, but then some of them are kind of just these random people that are like, this is a bizarre thing that happened to me, and they, you know, he listens to them and he gives them the um, the time and the the respect of the theory that you know anybody deserves, but then it doesn't come down and say we're trying to convince you that this is actually what's happening. It's more just what are the types of people that would think about this, and you know it, it's also almost even a little cynical about it, and kind of tries to show common connections between all, all these people. Yeah, I'm realizing. I mean, I didn't really answer your question. I mean, I, I you know about about how these these sort of moment you know the, this movie like allows me to to let the sort of music take over in ways that other documentaries don't. I mean, I think that's really, that's a testament to Rodney and my, my relationship. Right. And, mm-hmm. and his, his trust of me and my sort of devotion to the film. Cause I, I, I mean, I also like Rodney is very good at making things that just are my taste also. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't, you know, we don't argue a lot on these movies at all. Um, and almost almost never you know um like usually a first draft of mine of something is already pretty close you know Mm -hmm. and if it changes drastically it's usually because i've had a better idea later on or sometimes he'll take something i've written and put it in a place that i didn't intend it and and i'll 
and I'll say, oh, that's interesting. Well, well if I, what if I tweak it more and then maybe I'll replace it in its sort of earlier, um, in its earlier sort of stages. And then, you know, it's, it's a very like fluid and very like congenial sort of collaboration. Um, there's not really any, we're never really at odds with each other and we're always really excited about, like, I trust his ideas so much that whatever he suggests, I need to, I need to try it because it's probably a better yeah. idea than what I had. And I think a, a little bit vice versa too, right? That, you know, if he suggests something and I kind of elaborate on it, he'll, he'll he's happy to let me try it, you know, which is rarer than you think. I don't know. Um, and that's not something you can kind of manufacture that kind of relationship, right. you know? Um, it, it sounds fun. It sounds like a really fun collaboration. It's fun. It's a ton of work, you know? <laughs> yeah. um and it's and it's it's a ton of work because we make a lot of work for ourselves doing it you know mm-hmm. um and and foolishly i i have signed up for doing both the the sound design and the music um which is just an astronomical amount of work and not something that i necessarily <laughs> throw myself into with just anybody you know well, there's a specific scene in the film that I've been circling around a little bit. I don't want to spoil it since this is probably going to drop, you know, right after the premiere of the uh, the film. So want I want this to kind of be spoiler free for the most part. <laughs> but I think it's the scene of the film, right? It's the the scene that involves a camera moving through a VR house yeah. as a character is telling a story, really gripping visual storytelling. But then it also kind of lets you play up the horror in your score a lot. And I think, you know, in general with horror films, the music is so important for the tension and the atmosphere. And talking about your relationship with Rodney, I'm I'm guess I'm just wondering in that scene and in scenes like that specifically, is it something where Rodney says, Hey, here's this scene, this is what I need from the scene, work your magic? Or does he just give you the scene and then you kind of identify this is what will work best with it? Um, well, in this particular, so it's a little of both, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, 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 because I get involved so early on Rodney's movies and anytime I get involved early enough, like before there's a cut of the movie, I try to write not to picture. Uh, like I try to okay. just write, uh, have some ideas, sort of know what the film is about, kind of have an idea of the sort of flavors or feelings I need to hit. And I just try to write all of those things with the idea, right, that I'm making my job easier by getting to write a bunch of music <laughs> and then just edit it to picture and it's going to sure. be perfect and I'm going to be done, which of course never happens, right? So I wrote like 100 minutes of music probably for this movie before I got a cut of it. And then about maybe 40 minutes of that music actually is in the movie. And then I had to write another like 50 to 60 minutes of music in this movie. There's a lot of music in this movie. It's almost through composed. Um, so that's usually what end up ends up happening, right? Is that I've 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 written I've come up with some sort of themes and some ideas. About half of them don't work and get thrown away, and then the other half kind of become the spine of the movie, and then I have to fill in all of the sort of connective tissue, right? That's kind of usually what ends up happening. The scene you're referring to is, if not the first, one of the very very first pieces that I wrote, um, and I can't oh, wow. remember if I had seen anything. I think I had just heard the audio because none of the animation of course existed yet right um and i think i had just heard the audio of that phone call sorry my cat is being quite loud in the background and (laughs) um it's the second zoom in a row that i've had a a cat uh, in the background moving around well it's only appropriate my favorite moment in glitch in the matrix is is when one of the characters dogs start being bad in the background and he has to go deal with them for a second it makes me laugh 
so much and I'm so glad it's in the movie. So it's only appropriate. But um, when I heard that interview that Rodney did with Josh and Josh mentioned, again, trying not to give away any spoilers, though, honestly, I don't really believe in spoilers. I feel like if there's one thing you can know that will spoil a movie, maybe it's not that good of a movie to begin with anyway. But I'm just a little bit of a spoiler snob over here, yeah. so I try to respect generally what people. Yeah, no, I know, like but people go for it. And it's, people, it's fine. Well, no, 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 no. I'll be, I'll be good because this is like, I mean, I remember the moment when I kind of first learned and heard Josh's story in the context of the rest of the film and and how powerful yeah. that was to me for me. So I'll, I'll be as coy about it as I can. But um, when I heard Rodney's interview with Josh, um, and Josh mentioned that song you know that that drove uh his sort of actions that then he describes that the the Mm -hmm. album and the song that he was listening to that song that we all know at least we all know that line that begins the song that he quotes that is sampled and so ubiquitous i'm just it's just like burned into my brain um and i kind of without even without thinking about the legality of it or the (laughs) <laughs> the practical practicality of it. I was just like, I got to do a cue that uses that part yeah. of the song and kind of, kind of breaks it apart. So I also became fast because all of these interviews were, you know, recorded in like really imperfect conditions, right? They're all recorded over zoom or Skype or mm-hmm. some, or the telephone or some like sort of imperfect, you know, transmission medium, which now we're all, so so used to right we it's how you experience other people now or through these these screens right uh instead of you know i was really excited about like kind of leaning into the digital artifacts and like the compression artifacts that that kind of transmission creates like all of the little oh wow skips and uh squelches and like the sort of way that you know like a bad connection gets kind of watery um sounding as like the spectrum kind of falls apart i was just kind of always looking for ways to capitalize that on that and make it really beautiful and so one of the processes i you know i was i was like writing little scripts and things to kind of recursively turn things into worse and worse mp3 files and like different trying different (laughs) kinds of compression like really inspired by like yeah alvin lucier or or steve reich or somebody these like iterative processes that you hear and uh and like trying to think of how those translated away from the acoustic space and the analog tape space into the um, the digital space. And after like sort of doing it manually, I found this 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 plugin that does it for you, of course, um, <laughs> by this yeah. company, Goodhertz, called Lossy. There are a handful of like, of like sort of compression emulation plugins uh, for like mastering purposes, you know, so you can hear what your mix is going to sound like on Spotify or on oh, right. Deezer or on YouTube or whatever. And, um, and I tried to view those out and I couldn't quite break them in the way that I wanted to, but this plugin lossy is really the only one I think that I can find that I could find any way that, that intends you to use it in a musical way and gives you like controls over the algorithm that you don't even get like in a command line sort of setting, or at least that I don't because I'm not a real programmer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, but so I was able to kind of use that plugin and I use, I, I use that plugin so much on this movie that I think I'm not allowed to use it anymore for the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> um, but um, I found that like taking that line from that song and kind of gradually kind of making it a wor- more and more compressed and more and more um, and, and like worse and worse quality, uh, it would kind of like 
freeze little tones and little partials and overtones that were sort of buried inside that that line and that that sound god it's hard to talk about this without telling what it actually is but um <laughs> but uh and those and those frozen little tones would become kind of sine waves right and those would kind of stay and i realized the more and more i did that they kind of turned into chords you know and then oh, if i wow, went yeah. in and i figured out what those sine waves were I actually ended up auto-tuning them so that they snapped to kind of a musical scale and then figuring out kind of what key this utterly pitchless thing was kind of in. And then I could kind of write on top of it with using this vocal sample as a drone, basically, when it was so stretched and so distorted and so, like, compressed. Um, and that became... And then I and I thought, you know, I need to write a... I always love writing what I call a hymn for a movie. I always have a cue that I think of as my hymn, which is funny because there's an actual hymn in this movie. Also, there's two actual hymns in this movie also. <laughs> but that this was kind of where I started. And I was like, this is my, my hymn based on this song. And it's my hymn for Josh. And I don't know if it works in the movie because I haven't seen anything. But I've had this idea and I can't shake it. So I have to do it. And I, and I did that really early on. And that was the cue I probably rewrote the most too. And that one needed a lot of shoehorning to get it to match picture when I finally had picture. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe the only cue also that I play an acoustic instrument on. There are these like tuned pieces of metal on it that I use to kind of play the, I don't know, there's a, there's a phenomenon when you hear a pitchless piece of audio on a loop. Uh, enough times you start to hear pitch in it. You start to hear this mm -hmm. like melodic shape in it. And listening to that vocal sample on a loop for hours I started to hear a little m melody in it, you know? Um, yeah. And so I, I used these sort of tuned pieces of metal um, by this this company, Morph Beats. I make these gamelon strips. They're really cool. And I used it to play the melody that I'd heard in my head um, from hearing that. So the, the, the vocal samples kind of turns into this this gamelon melody that also has kind of a church belly kind of quality to it, to me. And it's uh, it's not, you know, it's no doing of mine that that's, the most powerful scene in the movie i just was always hoping i could like i could <laughs> i could help support it because it is really hard well no i mean i definitely think that the score absolutely is part of it like without the score i mean obviously you have a very haunting tale but I, it it does just kind of glue you to the screen with just how off-putting it is so oh, thank so, you really wonderful piece thank you so much so I just want to transition a little bit into your work as a music producer for uh, the freestyle rap group, Clipping. Um, sure. I've been listening to it a bit uh, in preparation for the interview. <laughs> yeah. I think it's really great. I, I love the uh, chapter 319. Very prescient, but just really fun and phenomenal song right there. But um, I just wanted to ask, how does scoring scenes for a film differ, or maybe it's completely the same, as producing tracks for a single song of Clipping? Well, there, there. I mean, there are a ton of practical differences, and it always used to feel like those were in kind of two different worlds, you know. And yeah. I, and I, though the techniques kind of the techniques for, certainly informed each other, and 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 this happens a little bit less now. But at the beginning of clipping, uh, when sort of beginning beats and like looking for source material, oftentimes. I mean, I guess this still happens, but there would be a sound I recorded for a movie that didn't get used or that got mm -hmm. cut or didn't, you know, feature very, excuse me, very prominently. And I would say, hey, this is a cool sound. And I think I have this other musical idea we can do with it. Let's try that, you know. Or 
our song Body and Blood, um, in addition to having the sample, the death pile sample in it, uh, has a bunch of sounds in it that I made for uh, the composer Joe Trapanese for his score for the the animated Tron series on the Disney Channel oh, um, cool. that, that didn't get used. I made like a bunch of weird sort of squelchy synth noises that ended up being a little too like standing out too much. Um, mm-hmm. And and I liked them, so they had, that ended up being one of the sort of main rhythmic elements in that song. Like things like that happened a lot, but definitely like the rigid constraints though we have like we have a lot of rules in clipping and almost like sort of dogma 95-esque constraints like when we started (laughs) right of like you know no traditional drum sounds no melodies no uh david never raps in first person that's the one rule we really haven't broken actually except on chapter 319 because it felt like that was a time where we could say hey yes we believe this (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) we all think this is true um so full stop (laughs) um but um but thinking about those constraints and then like and like sort of trying starting to apply like constraints and process music to film music has been weirdly liberating and exciting too and i think that probably i've not really done it more more than on glitch in the matrix like pretty much all of these cues can be like summed up in like a sentence of like this was the process right Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the cue we were just talking about is like, I took that vocal sample and I applied a digital compression process to it until it became pitched. And then I used that pitch to make the rest of it. You know what I mean? Like, it's very like sort of programmatic in that way. And that comes from the successes of, of working in clipping and like learning when those processes are going to yield something useful or beautiful and when they're not, you know, that, that all comes from working in clipping, I think. Um, and what's interesting, the, the, the parallel that I see too, um, is that I am really good. I'm, I'm best at writing music when I have like a, a time structure imposed on me, which in a film is usually the picture, right? Is usually the film itself is like, well, the cue starts here and it ends here and we need to get mm-hmm. from there to there in this amount of time. And we need to hit these beats along the way. And like having that little structural map in time is you know, like is is a constraint that I find very freeing, right? Because then it's a math puzzle to solve and solving a math puzzle is way less daunting than creating a beautiful piece of music out of thin air out of your mind, right? Like that's, yeah. <laughs> that's terrifying. <laughs> right. But when you have a math puzzle to solve, then you kind of solve the puzzle and then you see if it's beautiful and, and then you have something to work with. And that's a lot easier for me sometimes than, than just making something out of thin air. And, and rap songs are almost kind of the same. Like we, like very early on in clipping, we decided that, you know, these, these songs need to, because the sounds we're using are so unconventional, um, and might take people off guard. We need to remind people that we are making rap songs. So structurally they have to feel like rap songs. So I have like all of these in my music software, I have all these saved like sort of structural guides that I can just pull in that it's like, Oh, we want to do a, 12 bar verse eight bar hook with a four bar bridge down the line. I have that pulled up and I can just lay it into my session, no matter what the template is. And I know where all those beats are. And it's like scoring a scene from a movie in that case. And then, you know, and then you have all the freedom to break that anytime you want. It was like, Oh, we need an extra two beats here. So I'm going to just scoot all this stuff over, which you can't do in a movie. (laughs) It it sounds like they kind of complement each other. They do. And I, I mean, that's, that's like, 
they do because I let them also like mm-hmm. uh, like 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 the impulse is always to keep all these realms of my life separate you know um yeah that like oh i'm making a rap song now not a film score so they don't have anything to do with each other or i'm designing a <laughs> designing sound for a play or i'm teaching a class you know um they don't have anything to do with each other can't let anybody i can't let my kids know i'm in a band if i'm teaching you know <laughs> yeah, yeah and i don't care anymore it's all the same and it's all like and it's all part of the same sort of the the work is all of these things combined like the work is the career right which is all of these facets and i i don't know why it's taken me so long to really realize that and i keep realizing it and keep finding ways that i'm not taking advantage of that um even though i intellectually understand that i should be yeah well it's a very cool career thanks Um, i just you know just to kind of round us out here i've got to ask as a friend and a collaborator of david diggs (laughs) <laughs> I'm sure you have a favorite song in Hamilton. Would you care to share what that is? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Guns and Ships. Every time that rap beat drops, I lose my mind. Uh, I'm going to be totally... Wow, maybe I shouldn't be this frank. Uh, I have heard Hamilton once, which is when I saw it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> which is when I saw it on Broadway. And I was just like floored by everyone's virtuosity. Um, and just like I've, I've been moved by what that show has done for so many incredibly talented people. I mean, David is like for so long, he was the most talented person I knew with none of the reward, you know? Yeah. Um, and I mean, I cried watching Hamilton during the curtain call because I was like, holy shit, this broken, stupid, fucked up system that seems to just reward the privileged and the rich. It actually worked for once. It actually yeah. took my friend from Oakland, who's like the hardest working, most talented person I know, just like hustling and struggling. Also, at that time, <laughs> not true anymore, the like poorest friend that I had, you know, like financially, <laughs> yeah. like we would go on clipping tours and come back, you know, four weeks later and be like, well, everyone made 200 bucks. And you know, for me, I had this other career and it's like, yeah, okay, taking four weeks off of real work for 200 bucks is not a great idea. But for David, that was his rent and he needed it at that moment, you know, always. And, um, gosh, you know, I remember we, you know, for a long time, Hamilton was the like thorn in the sides of, of, of clipping, right? <laughs> it was like, it was like, oh I my God, imagine, yeah. dude, why are you going to do this workshop of this this terrible idea of a rap musical about Alexander Hamilton. Nobody wants to see that. (laughs) We have like this super aggressive noise rap project. That's like kind of starting to take off. Like you should be devoting your time to that. (laughs) (laughs) And and then a a good friend of mine from LA, who's a a a voice teacher who was working with David while he was sort of developing Hamilton. She went to New York and saw like a rehearsal room, you know, workshop of Hamilton and came back and she was like, that's going to be the biggest thing on Broadway and he's going to win a Tony. And we were like, okay, whatever you say. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe I don't have my finger on the pulse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm jealous that you got to see it on Broadway. I have not. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's... with the Disney Plus release, at, at the least, we watched it a couple times. And oh, that's I just, yeah. I adore David and, and everything. So I, oh, I had to ask. He's the best. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, he's still like people like the only thing that's like really changed about our relationship is that it's just harder to find time to work, you yeah. know, but he is 
he's still just our friend, you know? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So uh, just to close us out and on a light note, since we are over here at the Movie Marathoners podcast, Jonathan, if you had to run a marathon, I'm not going to make you, but if you had to, and you could only listen to one film score on repeat for however long it took you, which film score would you listen oh to? Oh my gosh. Francois Oudchamp's score for Inside. Okay. The the French horror that was movie. Quick. The, I that's like I don't know, still hasn't been topped for me. That's a great score. Um and he tragically passed away a couple of years ago and I I love his music so much and I never really felt like felt like he had a career that was just kind of just beginning. He did like that and well he did High Tension which has never had a real release and he did Donkey Punch which that did have a pretty great score release. And then I, I think posthumously a ton of his stuff was put up on a Bandcamp page and all of that material is great. He's really, he was really one of my favorite composers that we lost too early. Wow. Well, I'll, I'll definitely be sure to check that out. It's not one I'm familiar with, but. Oh, I was going to say that movie is, is pretty amazing too, Inside. It's a French horror movie from uh, like 20, 2008, 2009 or something. It's a sort of home invasion movie about a woman who's pregnant and people are trying to get in to her house. It's wow. really, really scary. And his score is the last thing that I would have written and that I would expect to be in that movie. Um, is it a scary score? Would no. Would you be haunted the whole time that you're it's, running? No, it's, I mean, maybe it's not, you know, it's probably not the best score for running. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just the score that I still listen to the most. It's so beautiful. It's this like small sort of chamber ensemble, like string trio or quartet and electronics. And it's so elegant and so simple. And, just fits the movie like a glove but in the last way that you would expect um it's it's such a bold choice it really it really changed you know because everyone says like oh it's fun to play against picture sometime right to like mm -hmm. you know a very simple like it was a stupid simple way is like to put the sad music over the happy scene so that you know what the character's thinking or something but this i don't know this is this is a this is a whole new level of playing against picture in a way that was so compelling and so effective well, I'll, I'll definitely be sure to check it out. Cool. All right, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me. This really was an honor. Oh, absolute pleasure. Be sure to check out Jonathan Snipes' work in A Glitch in the Matrix, which comes out on VOD on February 5th. This has been a Movie Marathoner's Sundance 5K series episode. Be sure to stay tuned for more Sundance coverage. You can find all of our Sundance 5K series and the main feature episodes of Movie Marathoners, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, at our website evergreenpodcasts.com slash movie dash marathoners or wherever you listen to podcasts thanks so much for listening and remember that life's a marathon so let's take it one movie at a time Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. 
You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah. right? And yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Chapotas. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good poor. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.